Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Like weeping. Lots Copious of weeping from Dumbledore, from Mallory Rubin, from a lot of people. <laughs> so if you're comfortable with open displays of emotion, please hang in with binge mode. If not, check out one of the other great podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. If not, honestly, what are you doing here at this I don't point? know. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> 60 episodes deep into this. Why are you here? One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're recalling how many times we refuse the post of Minister for Magic, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, Binge Mode. He stood up, and Dumbledore did the same, and they looked for a long moment into each other's faces. Tell me one last thing, said Harry. Is this real? Or has this been happening inside my head? Dumbledore beamed at him, and his voice sounded loud and strong in Harry's ears, even though the bright mist was descending again, obscuring his figure. Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it is not real? Part of the Ringer Podcast mm. Network. I'm Allie Rubin, Executive what Editor. What a great podcast network. <laughs> it is great. Yeah. I'm Allie Rubin, Executive Editor of TheRinger.com. Oh. Great website. Y'all. Fabulous. Joining me today, now that he's finished recoiling from the flayed, childlike creature wailing on the ground. Is there nothing we can do, Mallory Rubin? Nothing. There is nothing. It's Ringer Senior Creative and your headmaster. Hello. Jason Concepcion. Mal, you cannot help, but you can help binge mode Harry Potter, equally scarred and stunted, but not beyond help, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe, whether or not Harry spotted you on his walk through the castle. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us five points and stars for binge mode. Also, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group which is just for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to reveal which of the gutting lines in these chapters made you ugly cry the ugliest. Please also head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. These t-shirts will travel with you to a place between life and death. They will indeed. I think all tears are beautiful. FYI. (laughs) (laughs) Though I would say that as the person who's going to cry 40 times today. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how understanding shapes chapters 32 through 33 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're diving into the incomparable chapters 34 and 35. Yes. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep! On details from all seven books and ten films, including the new Fantastic Beast movie. Hello. We're going to limit that. <laughs> and the wider Potter canon. Oh! Taking the entire series into account from the moment Voldemort tilts his head. So steady your fingers and turn the stone thrice in hand. Because it's time to head to the forest again. 
Mal, where do you think we are? My dear boy, I have no idea. This is, as they say, your podcast. Damn it, explain! Well then, <laughs> let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hamlet's chapters. 34 to 35. By climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine and plot the Hogwarts Express Choo Choo. Now carrying the understanding that he must die so that Voldemort can eventually die too, Harry takes a long and introspective walk to the Forbidden Forest. At what he now realizes is the close, he opens the snitch and finds the Resurrection Stone, which he uses to see his parents, Sirius and Lupin, and gain comfort on his march toward death. Harry reveals himself to Voldemort and does not raise his wand when the Dark Lord issues the killing curse. Phoenix Song for Harry Potter. Except... Hold it there! Harry wakes in a white space he later discerns to be King's Cross Station, where he sees Albus Dumbledore. The headmaster explains everything about his own past, the nature of the Deathly Hallows, and the true connection between Harry and Voldemort. And Harry realizes that while the horcrux within him is gone, he is not dead and, in fact, can return, should he choose, to the forest with the chance to defeat the Dark Lord for good. Woo! Mal, does it hurt? Podcasting? Not at all. Lies. <laughs> Quicker and easier than falling asleep. Yeah, lies again. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme, chapters 34 to 35 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is sacrifice. Here we go, folks. Chapter 34, The Forest Again. My favorite chapter in the entire Harry Potter series. Quote, Finally, the truth. Harry, having emerged from Snape's stunning perception and reality-shifting memories, lies on the floor of the headmaster's office, trying to process the unprocessable, undergoing an internal transmutation so seismic we'd normally associate it with alchemy itself. Finally, the truth. But what is the truth? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like and smell like? Who reveals it? Who bears the burden of it? What does it cost and where does it lead? After Harry prevented Quirrell and Vapormort from getting the Sorcerer's Stone in Harry's first year, Harry sat in the Hogwarts hospital wing and asked Dumbledore to pay him the basic human kindness of speaking to him honestly about his own life. It was, as Dumbledore gently prepared him for, an impossibility. The truth, Dumbledore told the 11-year-old boy who had just saved the Wizarding World for the second time despite not fully understanding his place in it. It is a beautiful and terrible thing and should therefore be treated with great caution. That caution has always been multifaceted in its intention. To protect Harry, yes, but also to protect the plan and Harry's place in it. Harry's understanding will continue to solidify in King's Cross. He has not yet achieved full awareness. But the knowledge that more clarity awaits is part of what's missing, part of the void that now threatens to swallow Harry whole. Quote, lying with his face pressed into the dusty carpet of the office where he had once thought he was learning the secrets of victory, Harry understood at last that he was not supposed to survive. This sentence, just the second in a chapter unmatched in its examination of heroism and the transformative power of selflessness and love is a devastating portrait of a specific type of grief. 
Harry has mourned an unthinkable number of loved ones, but now he must begin to mourn something else, himself. To grieve not only what appears to be the end of his chance at happiness and prosperity and that most precious of things, time, but also his relationship to the reality of his life to this point. In The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell's seminal text on the archetypal hero's journey, Campbell writes, of Avalokiteshvara and the stage known as Apotheosis, where the hero achieves newfound understanding, quote, like the Buddha himself, this godlike being is a pattern of the divine state to which the human hero attains, who has gone beyond the last terrors of ignorance. One of the great accomplishments of J.K. Rowling's tale is that it at once adheres to and defies these myth-making conventions, putting Harry on the hero's path in each of his years and in his overall seven-part arc, while also consistently reminding us that Harry's story, like life itself, is not so neat and tidy. Ignorance may fade, but there is no last terror here. Remember always the essential words that we return to so often from George R.R. Martin. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave. Harry's terror upon emerging from the pensive is not evaporated in the face of enlightenment. It is all-consuming. And that makes his choice to push through it and rise tall and sturdy like the chimney in Spinner's End, the ultimate hallmark of his courage. From the book, his job was to walk calmly into death's welcoming arms. Along the way, he was to dispose of Voldemort's remaining links to life, so that when at last he flung himself at Voldemort's path and did not raise a wand to defend himself, the end would be clean and the job that ought to have been done in Godric's Hollow would be finished. Neither would live. Neither could survive. There is a utilitarianism at play in Harry's thoughts here that at once speaks to his unrivaled conviction and belies the spark at the heart of so much of what makes Harry Harry. His reckless, impulsive spirit has led him astray before. But it's a core part of his DNA, the same strands and embers that always make him believe that there's another way, a better way forward. The ability to choose has defined Harry and will continue to do so. And even though the choice to stand up right now and walk toward an end that seems unavoidable is still a choice, in many ways the most demanding, awe-inspiring show of free will of all, it doesn't fully feel that way to Harry right now. His thoughts betray an observational quality, as though he's watching the final frames of his life play out on a screen, only now understanding the director's design, helpless to rewrite the script to influence the ending. When Harry learns the truth of the prophecy, he struggled not only to shoulder his grief for Sirius, but to grapple with the idea of his own predestination. As we've explored before, one of the Harry Potter saga's great subversions of quintessential fantasy tropes is upending the role that destiny plays. By positioning a prophecy at the center of the story that is fundamentally and unambiguously about the power of personal agency. In this darkest moment for Harry and readers alike, when it seems that Dumbledore has, as Snape said, quote, kept him, Harry, alive so that he can die at the right moment, this is what we can and must hold on to. That this choice, not this fate, is really what Dumbledore was preparing Harry for. That Dumbledore was the one who helped Harry see this from the moment when he issued the famous Quote, it is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are, quote, from Chamber of Secrets, to their towering row in Prince when Dumbledore, knowing that his life was drawing to a close, knowing that, as we saw him tell Snape in The Prince's Tale, he had, quote, information I must give him before it is too late. He spoke to Harry with an urgency we had rarely seen. It is essential that you understand this, he shouted, as Harry minimized the vitality of his love and his agency in the face of Voldemort and the prophecy alike. But sir, Harry said, as Dumbledore touted the formidability of Harry's heart and history, it all comes to the same thing, doesn't it? I've got to try and kill him. Or, got to, said Dumbledore. Of course you've got to, but not because of the prophecy, because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. 
Harry can't rest now. He knows that he must try, but he feels, too, the weight of the prophecy anew, its words returning to him, not as a guide, but seemingly in mockery for him, ever believing that he could be the either who lived. Quote, those who know, Campbell wrote of Apotheosis, not only that the everlasting lives in them, but that what they and all things really are is the everlasting. Dwell in the groves of the wish-fulfilling trees. Drink the brew of immortality and listen everywhere to the unheard music of eternal concord. These are the immortals. Harry does not feel immortal here. He cannot yet bring himself to stand. He rests on the floor, drinking in the tactility of his own body. Quote, he felt his heart pounding fiercely in his chest. How strange that in his dread of death it pumped all the harder, valiantly keeping him alive. He wonders how many more beats remain. His heart, his true weapon, now appearing to him not as a boon and a differentiator, but as a countdown clock, reminding him with each surge of blood and life that he's moving toward the end, that the goal of his fight is no longer to survive, but to die so that others might. Quote, terror washed over him as he lay on the floor with that funeral drum pounding inside him. Would it hurt to die? All those times he had thought that it was about to happen and escaped, he had never really thought of the thing itself. His will to live had always been so much stronger than his fear of death. This line, this idea, is remarkable to consider. Death, as we've discussed so often before, has been ever-present in Harry's life, never further away than one flash of green light or whooshing whisper from the veil. And yet, even for Harry, who has needed to stare death in the face so many times, who has come to embrace Dumbledore's next great adventure ethos, who will, in this very chapter, greet death as an equal like the third brother in Beetle's tale did, death remains a hooded figure on a bridge, a hazy barrier obscured in the shadow of his own fear. Each of Harry's brushes with death has been unique in the way that death always is. But they've been connected, too, by certain commonalities. First, the rush of urgency and chaos. As he raced to beat Snape, really quarrel, to the stone. As he pushed to save Ginny from the basilisk and ultimately his good friend Tom. As he literally raced the clock to save Sirius and prisoner of Azkaban and thought he was racing the clock to save him in order. And so on and so on. And second by his fierce desire to get back to his friends and loved ones, to see their faces, to bask with them in the promise of a new day that he had helped deliver. But not here. Voldemort's fast-approaching deadline belongs to a different plane of existence than the one that Harry occupies in this moment. There's a stillness around him, a solitude. All quiet, but the rhythms of his own body, trying with each tick to remind him that he is alive, that he's precious. His only companion is the at once blinding and guiding clarity of knowing what he must now do. Not to get back to his loved ones, as he has every time before, but to walk away from them in order to ensure that they can return to each other in his stead. From the book, it did not occur to him to try to escape, to outrun Voldemort. It was over. He knew it. And all that was left was the thing itself dying. Even if it wasn't over, of course, Harry would never run. It's not in his nature to flee, to quit, to leave others behind. He fights always for others. That's what victory is to Harry, not beating someone else, but protecting those he loves. And he's arrived at a moment when he believes that the only way to do that is by sacrificing himself. 
The weight of the Chosen One label has pressed down on Harry at times, filling him with dread and angst and rage, and at times filling him with ambition and lucidity and purpose. But now Harry believes that his life, his purpose, has been reduced to this act, this act of dying. That he was chosen not to kill Voldemort, but to let Voldemort kill him. It is precisely because Harry does not know the full truth that he'll learn in the next chapter in King's Cross that his decision here carries so much power. Magically, yes, as we'll see in The Flaw in the Plan, but when we learn that Harry's sacrifice cast the same protection dome over the legions inside Hogwarts that Lily's oblation once cast over him. But also emotionally solidifying beyond the shadow of a doubt of death what Harry is willing to give in the headmaster's office as he continues to process what he's learned in Snape's memories. Harry begins to wish that one of his prior escapes could have claimed his life, that one of his great achievements could have been his end instead, that his wand hadn't saved him the night of the Seven Potters battle, that it could have ended then in battle, in flight, as he drew Voldemort away from his friends. He even wishes that he could have died like Hedwig in a flash, without ever knowing what awaited, never having the time to think about what it all meant. Truth and choice are two of this story's defining themes and one that Harry honors in astonishing fashion in this chapter, but his path is full of unease and anguish. He wishes he did not know the truth because then he would not have to make this choice. He wishes that he could have thrown himself in front of someone else to save them from an oncoming spell, a human shield acting on instinct. From the book, he envied even his parents' deaths now. This cold-blooded walk to his own destruction would require a different kind of bravery. Harry has always known that he could die. He has never acted without recognizing the stakes. But now he knows that he will, that he must, that he cannot escape. Because that outcome is the point. He's not going to be bested in a duel or burned by a dragon or drowned in a lake. He's going to have to put one foot in front of the other and walk, and then choose to keep walking until he meets his maker. His fingers begin to tremble, his body revealing chemically, biologically, the terror bubbling within. He still tries to quiet the tremors. He's on his way to mastering death. Here... He seeks only to master himself. He sits up slowly. Quote, As he did so, he felt more alive and more aware of his own living body than ever before. This part kills me. Why had he never appreciated what a miracle he was? Brain and nerve and bounding heart. This line stands as one of the series' signature achievements. A reminder that Harry is so remarkable not because of his magical prowess, but because of his humanity. He's a person, flesh and blood and bone just like us. And he's afraid, just like any of us would be. His mouth dry as he marvels at his own vitality in the face of his mortality. He doesn't cry as he considers his body or what appears to be his fate. He's facing something that would be inconceivable to most of us, and yet staring it down leads him to experience the most relatably human of tendencies. Regret. Not for what he did, but for what he failed to do. For never pausing to fully appreciate the magic of simply being alive. To breathe and smile and love. Of course, Harry has, through his choices and his actions, always appreciated and honored life. But there's an existential quality to Harry's internal lament here that only facing death can bring. And the cruelest measuring stick of all is the one that we hold up to ourselves in our darkest of hours. And so his eyes are dry as he thinks about his impending death and the twisted path that led him to it. Quote, Dumbledore's betrayal was almost nothing. Mere pages ago, and certainly for the years that we've spent with Harry before this, that sentence, that idea, would have been inconceivable. And in one chapter, Harry's relationship with Dumbledore would become healed and whole. 
fully transparent in a way that it had never been before. Now, though, the seeds of doubt that grew into the vines that threatened to choke Harry's faith in Dumbledore have withered into nothingness. At times throughout Harry's journey, and particularly in this seventh book, that uncertainty has manifested in rage. Remember what Harry said to Hermione after reading about Dumbledore's history with Grindelwald in Rita's book. Shouts to Rita from Jason. She was right. (laughs) Quote, Look what he asked from me, Hermione. Risk your life, Harry, and again and again, and don't expect me to explain everything. Just trust me blindly. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust me even though I don't trust you. Never the whole truth. Never. At other times, this manifested in unmooring confusion. Remember what Harry thought to himself at Shell Cottage as he agonized over whether he'd made the right decision by choosing to destroy Horcruxes rather than hunt for Hallows. Quote, The idea of Dumbledore's corpse frightened Harry much less than the possibility that he might have misunderstood the living Dumbledore's intentions. But now there's no room for misunderstanding. There's no room for anger or questions or tears. There's space only for Harry's intention and the uncompromised acceptance of what he learned in those swirling memories. Quote, of course there had been a bigger plan. Harry tells himself that he was foolish not to realize it before now, to allow himself amid the torment and the hurt to believe that he was special, loved, cared for. Harry never believed he was special in the way young Tom Riddle did, in the way that corrupts and befouls, leading one to gaze down at one's own fingers, transfixed by promises of greatness. He believed in it in a way that allowed him to feel safe, to keep waking up every morning and going about his days despite Voldemort's gaze, ever present in the distance. His own personal eye of Sauron trained perpetually on the boy who lived and kept living. From the book, he had never questioned his own assumption that Dumbledore wanted him to live. And how could he? Why would he? What a terrible, tragic thing it would have been to ever wonder otherwise, and how out of character for a boy so determined to see the good despite all he had suffered. As Dumbledore himself reminded Harry time and again, Harry's ability to trust and love despite all that he had been through was incomparable. Consider what he said to Harry and Prince as they argued over whether Harry's heart was really a weapon on par with or superior to those that Voldemort boasted. Quote, yes, Harry, you can love, which given everything that has happened to you is a great and remarkable thing. You are still too young to understand how unusual you are. Here, Harry feels at once ancient and painfully naive, at last seeing things clearly after a lifetime of looking into a funhouse mirror that he thought showed the truth. From the book, now he saw that his lifespan had always been determined by how long it took to eliminate all the Horcruxes. Dumbledore had passed the job of destroying them to him, and obediently, he had continued to chip away at the bonds tying not only Voldemort, but himself to life. How neat, how elegant, not to waste any more lives, but to give the dangerous task to the boy who had already been marked for slaughter, and whose death would not be a calamity, but another blow against Voldemort. This bit of introspection is the near-perfect inverse to something Dumbledore said to Harry in order in The Lost Prophecy. Quote, What did I care if numbers of nameless and faceless people and creatures were slaughtered in the vague future if in the here and now you were alive and well and happy? But Harry can't recall those words now, can't turn to them for assurance that Dumbledore cared as much as he always said. If he were able to recall them, he would only think here that he had turned out to be the faceless ones to suffer and that the vague future had turned into his present as well. Harry's thoughts continue. Quote, And Dumbledore had known that Harry would not duck out, that he would keep going to the end, even though it was his end, because he had taken trouble to get to know him, hadn't he? That line, that possibility that Harry's beautiful friendship and mentorship with Dumbledore had actually been a cold calculus, 
is devastating to read and consider. In The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, the chapter in this book, not Rita's slanderous bit of bullshit. I mean, it's, um, again, <laughs> a lot of it gets confirmed in the, in the following chapter. <laughs> Harry, in the depths of his despair, said to Hermione, quote, I don't know who he loved, Hermione, but it was never me. This isn't love, the mess he's left me in. Yet at the end of that same chapter, as Hermione's hand affectionately grazed his head, Harry thought to himself, quote, He closed his eyes at her touch and hated himself for wishing that what she said was true, that Dumbledore had really cared. Even in the deepest pit of doubting Dumbledore, Harry still wanted to believe, still desperately fought off fully sacrificing his long-standing view of the man and wizard that he idolized and loved. And ultimately, that belief, that faith, will be rewarded. Dumbledore, as we'll see in King's Cross, did care, did get to know Harry, and through that knowledge, learned that he could trust in Harry's uncommon character and his inevitable sacrifice, and thus in his ultimate triumph. Harry reflects here that Dumbledore knew that Harry would not want others to die for him if he could prevent it, and that's true. But that insight, that ability to see Harry so fully and clearly, did not lead to cavalier disposal. It allowed Dumbledore to help guide Harry to this moment where the very best of him, the very best of anyone, shines through. Quote, in the end, Dumbledore told Harry in The Lost Prophecy, It mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. Dumbledore knew always that Harry's heart would save him again here in the greatest test, the greatest choice of all. But Harry doesn't know that. Quote, The images of Fred, Lupin, and Tonks lying dead in the Great Hall forced their way back into his mind's eye, and for a moment he could hardly breathe. Death was impatient. Amid the latest gripping sentence from J.K. Rowling, the latest haunting personification of death itself, Harry thinks to himself, quote, but Dumbledore had overestimated him. He had failed. The snake survived. Because one horcrux other than Harry remains, Harry, the able and attentive student, knows that Voldemort will remain tethered to life just as long as one horcrux remains. Remember, before Voldemort, the foulest creatures who sunk to the vile depths of shredding their souls in pursuit of immortality made one and only one horcrux. Only Tom Riddle, as far as we know, made multiple horcruxes. Only Tom Riddle moved, quote, beyond the realms of what we might call usual evil, as Dumbledore put it to Harry and Prince. But the idea that Harry, who has achieved so much and who is about to achieve the unthinkable, feels that he has failed is heartbreaking in a way that disrupts something foundational in our lives. Harry wonders who will kill the snake for him and realizes that this must be why Dumbledore, who kept so many secrets in general and worked so hard to mask what he had learned about Voldemort's horcruxes in particular— encourage Harry to bring Ron and Hermione fully into his confidence about the quest. Quote, if he fulfilled his true destiny a little early, Harry thinks here, they could carry on, finish the job. In order, as Harry sat by the edge of the lake awash in grief over Sirius, he heard his fellow students laughing on the sunny grounds and, quote, felt as distant from them as though he belonged to a different race. As he thinks of Ron and Hermione now, he feels again apart, distant in a way not defined by space, but by fate's grand design. Quote, he felt as though he had parted from them long ago. As Harry looks at the watch that Molly gave him on his 17th birthday, the watch that once belonged to her brother, who died fighting a wizard's war, who died, as Moody said, fighting like a hero, he sees that nearly half of the time that Voldemort had given him has passed. He tells himself that he will not say goodbye to Ron or Hermione, who sacrificed so much to remain by his side. Quote, this was a journey they could not take together. Remember what Dumbledore said to Snape in The Prince's Tale? Quote, 
Harry must not know, not until the last moment, not until it is necessary. Otherwise, how could he have the strength to do what must be done? Precious few among us would ever be able to find this strength, but somehow Harry does. Somehow, Harry stands. Quote, his heart was leaping against his ribs like a frantic bird. Perhaps it knew it had little time left. Perhaps it was determined to fulfill a lifetime's beats before the end. He did not look back as he closed the office door. What point is there in looking back anymore? He's not closing the door on a room. He's closing the door on a life that he no longer recognizes as his own. Yet as Harry steps out into the empty castle, he begins, in a way, to take a tour through that life. Quote, he felt ghostly, striding through it alone, as if he had already died. As if he were walking through a museum built to display reminders of his own past experience. Despite the empty portrait frames and the absence of any souls living or dead in the corridors, he puts on his invisibility cloak as he walks, eventually reaching the entrance hall. Quote, Perhaps some tiny part of him hoped to be sensed, to be seen, to be stopped. But the cloak was, as ever, impenetrable. Perfect. When he reaches the front door, he sees Neville and Oliver Wood carrying in a body. Quote, Harry glanced down and felt another dull blow to his stomach. Colin Creevy, though underage, must have sneaked back. Phoenix song for Colin. whose feverish desire to be near Harry and soak up his majesty wouldn't let him leave the castle tonight, even though he was underage, just as it wouldn't keep him from sneaking down to try to visit Harry in the hospital wing back in Chamber of Secrets, leading to his petrification. It's one more loss, one more sacrifice that someone else made to try to help Harry win this war. It's exactly what Harry doesn't want. He looks at Colin as they carry him in. Quote, he was tiny in death. They're all so young. They're children fighting what should be a grown wizard's war. And as Oliver takes Colin from Neville and carries him into the Great Hall to join the dead and their mourners alike, Harry looks at Neville as he wipes the sweat from his brow and then heads back out into the ground to find more bodies. Quote, he looked like an old man. Harry glances back into the Great Hall, but he does not see Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Luna, or the Weasleys any of the people that he loves. Quote, he felt he would have given all the time remaining to him for just one last look at them. But then would he ever have the strength to stop looking? It was better like this. The only thing harder than seeing Harry say goodbye to Ron and Hermione is not seeing him say it. Not seeing one more moment pass between these friends who've stood by each other through boundless joy and boundless sorrow alike. We'll be there, Harry, Ron said to him after Dumbledore's funeral when he and Hermione swore an allegiance that never needed to be spoken. And they were there. They always have been. Their presence an anchor for Harry, no matter how stormy the sea. Prince closes with the line, he felt his heart lift at the thought there was still one last golden day of peace left to enjoy with Ron and Hermione. But now, as Harry walks through the tomb-like castle toward his own demise, there is only the darkness. He walks out into the night. From the book, the deathly stillness of the grounds felt as though they were holding their breath, waiting to see whether he could do what he must. He walks toward Neville and speaks his name, pulls off the cloak and reveals himself to his friend and schoolmate. 
Quote, the idea had come to him out of nowhere, born out of a desire to make absolutely sure. Neville asks where he's going, but Harry deflects, lying with ease when Neville presses him about whether he's off to honor Voldemort's demand. Wasting no time, allowing for no distractions, he tells Neville that Voldemort's snake, Nagini, must die. He says that Ron and Hermione know this too, and then stops himself short of finishing a sentence that began with, but just in case they... For a moment, he's stunned into silence by the sickening prospect he nearly just breathed into the air. Quote, the awfulness of that possibility smothered him. Yet even when faced with contemplating the crippling prospect of a world in which Ron and Hermione are not around to kill Nagini because Ron and Hermione are dead, Harry forces himself to push on, to sacrifice his sentimentality for this practicality. Quote, this was crucial. He must be like Dumbledore. Keep a cool head. Make sure there were backups, others to carry on. Dumbledore had died knowing the three people still knew about the Horcruxes. Now Neville would take Harry's place. There would still be three in the secret. As it is for Harry, it's difficult for readers to know what to feel here. Awe over Harry's conviction and determination, but also sorrow for this small death. Harry is acting rationally, wisely, but he's also letting the need for cool logic lead him to doing what was just done to him, to using another as a pawn in the war for the greater good, to shielding his target from the full truth in an effort to achieve the guarantee of a job well done. One thing that's clear— Rowling's master design, the line, quote, now Neville would take Harry's place, could not possibly be more laden with symbolic significance, for it was Neville about whom Professor Trelawney's prophecy could easily have been made. Neville, who has no idea how close he came to being the chosen one with a scar on his forehead and the weight of the wizarding world on his shoulders. Neville, who can also see Thestrals whose life has been touched by death and loss, who has experienced firsthand the horrors that Voldemort's reign of terror can unleash. And Prince Harry thinks to himself, quote, Neville's childhood had been blighted by Voldemort just as much as Harry's had, but Neville had no idea how close he had come to having Harry's destiny. No one is closer to Harry than Ron or Hermione, but no one other than Neville could be meant for this task, for this part of Harry's destiny. It's tragically poetic. One more unifying force between these two boys who never got to live normal lives. Neville repeats, kill the snake? And after Harry confirms, he goes to leave. Neville grabs his wrist before he can. We're all going to keep fighting, Harry, he says. You know that? Harry chokes out a, yeah, I, but cannot bring himself to say anymore. When they part, Harry puts the cloak back on and continues to make his way through the grounds. But after mere seconds, he sees Ginny, hunched over a young girl who's crying for her mother in the grass. Ginny, who was supposed to stay out of the fight, is trying to comfort this child. I don't want to fight anymore, the girl cries. I know, Ginny says, and her voice breaks as she does. Harry, who felt grateful that he had not suffered the temptation of even laying eyes upon Ron and Hermione, now wishes that he could call out to Ginny, that she could see him, that she would beg him not to go do what he now knows he must. Quote, he wanted to be stopped, to be dragged back, to be sent home, but he was home. Hogwarts was the first and best home he had known. He and Voldemort and Snape, the abandoned boys, had all found home here. This line is a tragedy in miniature. The idea that Harry cannot seek refuge or find peace anywhere else because the place that had brought him comfort and belonging for so long has tonight ripped that all away, becoming a tomb for his loved ones, a mausoleum where he thinks he must retire forever. The notion that he could be safe is unspeakably sad. Death and sacrifice take many forms. At Shell Cottage, in the wake of his decision to let Voldemort claim the Elder Wand, Harry thought to himself, quote, he could not remember ever before choosing not to act. Here, 
Gazing at Ginny with a desperate yearning, he forces himself to walk on without speaking. Quote, he did not look back. He passes Hagrid's hut, the memories of his many visits unfurling in his mind like the ribbons of thought on the brains in the Department of Mysteries. But no one is inside. Here, too, only darkness greets him. He walks on to the edge of the Forbidden Forest where he finds a mass of Dementors. Quote, he had no strength left for a Patronus. He could no longer control his own trembling. It was not, after all, so easy to die. Every second he breathed, the smell of the grass, the cool air on his face was so precious. To think that people had years and years time to waste, so much time it dragged, and he was clinging to each second. Harry isn't sure he'll be able to pass through the Dementor's chill, but he knows that he has to try no matter the cost. He thinks in Quidditch terms, quote, The long game was ended. The snitch had been caught. It was time to leave the air. To leave freedom. As he thinks this, something rises through the haze of horror in his mind and clicks into place. He remembered the snitch that Dumbledore left him in his will and pulls it with shaking fingers from the pouch around his neck. From the book, I open at the close. Breathing fast and hard, he stared down at it. Now that he wanted time to move as slowly as possible, it seemed to have sped up, and understanding was coming so fast it seemed to have bypassed thought. This was the close. This was the moment. It's not a question. It's not a guess. Harry knows. Because he knows that he will continue to march forward to try to save his friends until there's nowhere else to march. Because he knows that even when it didn't feel like it, he knew Dumbledore as well as Dumbledore knew him. In his bequest, Dumbledore wrote that he was leaving the snitch to Harry, quote, as a reminder of the rewards of perseverance and skill. Harry's sacrifice requires both, the unshakable resolve to walk into death's arms and the force of love and courage to win, not despite this choice, but because of it. Over the course of Deathly Hallows, Harry, learning of the snitch's flesh memory and of the Hallows lore, became convinced that Dumbledore had left the resurrection stone for him inside of the snitch. Harry caught this first snitch in his mouth, and so here he presses it against his lips, and as he does so, he tells the snitch what Snape's memories just told him. This is the end. This is the close. He whispers, I am about to die. Like the one ring revealing its black speech secrets when cast into fire, the snitch responds to Harry's touch, opening to reveal the black stone that had once rested in Marvolo Gaunt's ring. The resurrection stone, just as Harry believed. The hallow that most unites him and Dumbledore. He sees the markings that Marvolo believed to be the Peveril coat of arms, the sign of the Deathly Hallows. He can make out the triangle and the circle representing the cloak and the stone, and he sees that the stone is cracked down the middle line, representing the Elder One, both a reminder of Dumbledore's history with this object, the Horcrux in which he broke with the Sword of Gryffindor, as we know, the hallow which tempted him sorely, as we'll soon learn, and a harbinger of Voldemort's doomed misunderstanding of the Wand's mastership. Recall in Xenophilia's Lovegood's house how Ron, Hermione, and Harry each picked a different hallow as the clear instant choice, and how Harry, despite how a nominally unbeatable wand could help him in the battle, and despite how his invisibility cloak had helped him to this point, felt the pull of the stone, the hallow that could build a bridge between Harry and those that were lost. He grew to understand that the second brother's hallow could not bring people back properly, that, as Dumbledore once told him, no magic could reawaken the dead, and here his clarity is absolute. Dumbledore left him the stone to be retrieved at this final moment of urgent need, not to enable the selfishness that had at one time tempted the second brother, and as we'll see in King's Cross, Dumbledore himself, but to enable his courage, to reach out a comforting hand from beyond the veil and help turn death into what the third brother says it is instead, an old friend with whom he'd go gladly. Quote, And again, Harry understood without having to think. It did not matter about bringing them back for he was about to join them. 
he was not really fetching them. They were fetching him. He turns the stone in his hand three times, as the story instructed. And though his eyes are closed, he can hear the gentle sounds announcing the arrival of those the stone has summoned. He opens his eyes and looks upon his mother and his father and Sirius and Lupin. Like the riddle who emerged from the diary, Harry observes, they're not quite solid, but they're more than ghost. Enough to trick and tempt someone not in possession of Harry's rare fortitude. They smile at him as they move toward him. James with messy hair and crooked glasses wearing the clothes that Harry saw him in the night that James died. Quote, James was exactly the same height as Harry. Sirius is full-faced, younger than Harry ever saw him in life. Quote, he loped with an easy grace, his hands in his pockets and a grin on his face. Lupin is also younger than Harry ever knew him, less worn down by his disease and the cruelty around him. Quote, he looked happy to be back in this familiar place. Lily's smile is huge, bigger than anyone's, as wide as her signature green eyes, Harry's eyes. She, quote, searched his face hungrily, as though she would never be able to look at him enough. She tells him how brave he's been. Quote, he could not speak. His eyes feasted on her, and he thought that he would like to stand and look at her forever, and that would be enough. This is a moment, seven books, a lifetime, in the making. Harry reunited with the parents that he lost as a baby, with his family at last, not by some trick that befouls nature or by another's triumph over him in battle, but by his utterly selfless desire to sacrifice himself so that others might live. Each person standing in front of him now did that in a way for him. Their love, like the light of Lily's doe, has always been Harry's guide just as his love will now be a guide for so many others. And James tells him that he's nearly there, so close. He does not say to what. He doesn't need to. Harry's impending sacrifice is in the air, in his blood, in the heart and mind and soul leading him forward into the great unknown. And unknown that, despite the utterly human terror that's led his hands to tremble, doesn't scare him anymore. Quote, it is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness, nothing more, Dumbledore told Harry and Prince. And he also once reminded him back in Azkaban, you think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us? You think we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble? Well, Harry's family is with him now, united together, providing him a peace in the creeping approach of death that he never experienced in life. He's 17 here, nearly 18, barely younger than James and Lily were when they died almost the same age that they are in the forms that they stand before him now. There's something unspeakably sad about that. He could be their peer, and yet he is now and always their baby boy. Quote, does it hurt? The childish question had fallen from Harry's lips before he could stop it. Dying? Not at all, said Sirius. Quicker and easier than falling asleep. Here again is the magic that makes this chapter such a singular achievement. We are embedded more fully in Harry's head and heart than we've ever been before, and from our perches there, we see not spellwork and wizardry, nor aerial tricks, nor fantastic beasts. 
We just see a remarkable boy who grew into a remarkable man who's ready to make a remarkable sacrifice to give those he loves the chance of something better than what he got. Because he's human, because no matter how unsurpassed his selflessness and courage are, he's still so desperately afraid. Not of the idea of death, but of having to make that walk toward it. He wants not an unbeatable wand, but his parents, his family. He wants the magic that Dumbledore always told him would help him win love, compassion, humanity. Quote, grief, it seemed, drove Voldemort out. Harry thought to himself as his mind cleared to reveal a singular purpose in the wake of Dobby's death. Though Dumbledore, of course, would have said that it was love. It's love here, too, fully. Harry finding the strength to make the right choice, not the easy choice as Dumbledore implored the school in the wake of Cedric's death, because of the magic in his heart. Lupin follows Sirius's words by telling Harry that Voldemort will want to make it quick. Quote, he wants it over. No more time for games. Harry looks at all of them and says how sorry he is. Quote, I didn't want you to die. And he speaks to Lupin most of all, his death freshest, his son newly born. And Lupin speaks with anguish, but also with a clarity in death that often eluded him, that often eludes all of us in life. Quote, I was trying to make a world in which he could live a happier life. Just as Harry's doing now for all the people he loves. Harry feels the chill in the air and speaks again, voicing in the moment when he's choosing to walk away from his life, exhibiting the bravery and strength that will save humanity, the desire that defines so much. The craving for closeness, for the touch from another person, for the knowledge that someone is there to help and care. You'll stay with me, he asks. And it is a beautiful and gutting moment. The savior on the brink of death, alive here in his humanity. The man on the path to mastering death and Voldemort alike. Here, just a boy who wants to know that his parents are nearby. Until the very end, James says, echoing the words that J.K. Rowling spoke to us, her readers, in this book's opening and its dedication. A promise of a bond and love that extends beyond the bounds of mortal life into the eternity that we make together. Anyone who has lost a parent or a loved one understands the mark that such a loss leaves. Anyone who hasn't is able to glimpse that pain through the power of these words, these moments that speak to the transformative force of loss and love. Quote, to have been loved so deeply, Dumbledore told Harry and Stone, even though the person who loved us is gone will give us some protection forever. It is in your very skin. It is all around Harry now, too. Throughout the series, we can feel the impact that J.K.'s mother's death had on her life and on Harry's, too. We feel it here with unshakable force. Harry looks into Lily's eyes and says, stay close to me. In one of the series' most famous moments, when Dumbledore discovered the 11-year-old Harry hungrily drinking in his parents' faces in the mirror of Erised, he told Harry, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Remember that. In King's Cross, we learn that the heartache of Dumbledore's life that forged such wisdom. Here we see how fully the truth and power of that message lives in Harry. He's not tempted to dwell on this dream of life with his parents, speaking together, basking in each other's glow. He knows that they are here to guide him, as Nick once told him, on. He knows as Dumbledore helped him see in Prince that no words in a prophecy can give him purpose, that he must find the purpose in the fiber of his own being. Quote, but he understood at last what Dumbledore had been trying to tell him. Harry thinks in Prince. It was, he thought, the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death and walking into the arena with your head held high. Some people perhaps would say that there was little to choose between the two ways. But Dumbledore knew, and so do I, thought Harry, with a rush of fierce pride, and so do my parents, that there was all the difference in the world. 
His parents are here with him now as he converts this revelation into life-altering action. And they're the ones filled with pride, pride in their son, their boy who learned the greatest lesson and received the greatest gift that life has to offer. Living for something, living for love, is the actual path toward what Voldemort sought, toward an immortal drive and bond that transcends the planes of mortal life. Harry, buoyed by his intention and the loving grace of the four forms around him, moves forward through the Dementor's crushing cold, but it does not break him. From the book, he passed through it with his companions, and they acted like Patronuses to him. They are his hope. They are his courage. They are his shelter from the storm of despair around him. It is undeniably one of the series' most breathtakingly beautiful moments, a manifestation of the lessons that love is the greatest magic there is and that our choices can guide us to its warm embrace. Since the beginning of Harry's third year, nearly all series, the Patronus has stood as a hallmark of magical ability, a symbol of the meeting of will and heart and skill strong enough to fend off the dark. What Harry, Lily, James, Sirius, and Lupin represent to each other is so strong, so formidable, that it replicates bests that magic. It is that magic. It's what always gave Harry's Patronus form, literally his father's form, and now it takes the form of them all instead. They walk forward through the tangled trees and roots, Harry cloaked both by invisibility and the strength of his family's love. From the book, beside him, making scarcely a sound, walked James, Sirius, Lupin, and Lily, and their presence was his courage and the reason he was able to keep putting one foot in front of the other. He moves on feeling disconnected from his own body and from the bodies of the living that he's about to leave behind. Quote, The dead who walked beside him through the forest were much more real to him now than the living back at the castle. Ron, Hermione, Ginny, and all the others were the ones who felt like ghosts as he stumbled and slipped toward the end of his life, toward Voldemort. He hears a sound and sees two figures, the Death Eaters, Yaxley and Dalahov, out looking for him, but they can't see him or his guardians. And they share their lament that Harry appears not to be coming before time runs out, despite Voldemort's certainty that he would. And they declare their intention to head back to their master now, allowing Harry to follow them. Even his enemies have become his guides. Shortly, they arrive at the place where Aragog and his family once lived. Everyone is looking at Voldemort, who is looking at the Elder Wand, looking, he thinks, has always thought, at victory. Quote, he might have been praying, or else counting silently in his mind, and Harry, standing still on the edge of the scene, thought absurdly of a child counting in a game of hide-and-seek. They're both children now. Harry finding strength in the purity of that innocence. Voldemort finding, as ever, the rashness and jealousy that blinds. Harry is looking at Nagini in her sphere when Dalahoff speaks. No sign of him, my lord. Voldemort's red eyes burn as he dismisses Bellatrix's advances and speaks as though he were alone with his disappointment and his rage. I thought he would come, he says. I expected him to come. Voldemort's followers are completely silent. Quote, they seem as scared as Harry, whose heart was now throwing itself against his ribs as though determined to escape the body he was about to cast aside. He pulls off the cloak and tucks it into his robes and tucks away his wand as well to avoid the temptation to use it to try to fight. As Voldemort says that he was mistaken, Harry steps into view. You weren't, he says. And he says it as loudly as he can with all the force that he can muster. Quote, he did not want to sound afraid. He lets the resurrection stone slip from his fingers to the ground beneath his feet, and he sees the forms of Lily, James, Sirius, and Lupin vanish. But they're still with him, in his heart. Here in the clearing, quote, it was just the two of them. And then, as quickly as he thinks that the illusion shatters, the Death Eaters shout out, they laugh. 
Voldemort is transfixed, staring at Harry amid the uproar, and then Harry hears one voice rise above the rest. Harry, no. It's Hagrid, who's tied to a nearby tree, trying so fiercely to escape that he's shaking the branches with each surge of his body. And Harry resists the urge to go try to help him, or to try to reach for his wand to kill Nagini. Voldemort tilts his head as he looks at Harry, quote, and a singular mirthless smile curled his lipless mouth. He really believes that he's one. Harry Potter, he whispers, the boy who lived. He makes no speeches here, like he has so often in the past in the graveyard and goblet. He issues no taunts, like he did in the ministry and order. And as Harry thinks of Ginny, quote, her blazing look and the feel of her lips on his, Voldemort continues to tilt his head to the side, like he can't believe what he's seeing as he considers Harry. And he's building toward the moment, poised to deal what he thinks will be the lethal blow. Quote, Harry looked back into the red eyes and wanted it to happen now, quickly, while he could still stand, before he lost control, before he betrayed fear. He saw the mouth move and a flash of green light, and everything was gone. Chapter 35, King's Cross. We have spoken often about Rowling's masterful use of narrative distance and how reading the series is, in effect, a slow merging with Harry's perspective, so that, by order, we find ourselves fully in Harry's head. In King's Cross, Rowling refines that technique further still, taking us to a place that is at once grounded in Harry's consciousness and hints at realms both expansive and intimate, far beyond human experience. Dumbledore will soon describe the years-long struggle between Harry and Voldemort as a journey together, quote, into realms of magic hitherto unknown and untested. So too is our journey with Harry past the veil to a place which Rowling described in a 2007 web chat as being, quote, a limbo between life and death. It is some of her most surrealistic and symbolic writing of the series, influenced by Rowling's own religious beliefs, carrying the weight of Harry's standing as the Christ figure who sacrifices himself and is reborn as well as with the emotional power of a confessional as Dumbledore finally unburdens himself of the secrets he has carried for so long. And with the prince's tale in the forest again, it forms the holy trinity of this series, unsurpassed in its majesty, beauty, and emotional heft. Readers, remember, spent the two years... Two years between Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows obsessing over myriad things, but chief among them, Harry's fate. Would he live? Would he die? It seemed possible, even probable, that he might. And so when the forest again ends with Harry standing still, making no move to defend himself, willingly presenting his body to Voldemort in sacrifice so that Voldemort, in killing Harry, would also kill his inadvertent horcrux, unknowingly severing his own anchored immortality, we do not know if Harry has really died. As Voldemort sends the killing curse his way, the instant that it takes to wipe away our tears and turn the page with our own trembling fingers feels as though it contains an eternity the entire universe embedded in that heartbeat. And then we see the chapter number and name and a picture of Harry in swirling mist, eyes closed. Apparently no glasses on his face, no scar on his forehead. And we read those first words, quote, he lay face down, listening to the silence. Harry's alive, or at least not dead, or at least we think, at least not yet. We are in the mist as well, right there with him, still trying to make out the truth. Quote, he was perfectly alone. Nobody was watching. Nobody else was there. He was not perfectly sure that he was there himself. Such a great line. 
Time stretches on, though Harry can't tell how much of it is really passing. He realizes that he feels something underneath him, that he's laying on something tangible and real, and his awareness begins to knit itself together. Quote, it came to him that he must exist. If the surface on which he lies is real, then he must be real too. Aware now of his sense of touch, Harry realizes that he's naked. And though he's not afraid of this, he is intrigued. Where is he? How did he get here? What is he? J.K. Rowling leads us through that mist with Harry in lockstep with him on his journey of discovery. Quote, He wondered whether, as he could feel, he would be able to see. In opening them, he discovered that he had eyes. So good. He's in a place that he will soon recognize as King's Cross Station, where his journey into the wizarding world began. But he can't tell that yet. The mist he realizes is not obscuring his surroundings, but forming them. He sits up on the white floor and touches his face, realizing he's not wearing his glasses. And before he can contemplate this, he becomes aware of a sound. Quote, the small, soft thumping of something that flapped, flailed, and struggled. It was a pitiful noise, yet also slightly indecent. He had the uncomfortable feeling that he was eavesdropping on something furtive, shameful. Hearing these wretched noises, Harry becomes acutely aware of his own nakedness and vulnerability. And just then, a set of robes appears, clean and warm. He puts them on. From the book, was he in some great room of requirement? This is a fascinating line to consider in light of what function this setting and Harry's sacrifice ultimately serves. Harry takes in more of his surroundings, which, like a dream, assemble themselves wherever he casts his eyes. He seems a domed glass roof in a wide, cavernous space. Quote, he was the only person there, except for, and he can now see the thing making such pitiful sounds, and the source of the noises is awful to behold. Quote, it had the form of a small, naked child curled on the ground, its skin raw and rough, flayed-looking. It lies broken and repulsive under a seat, alone gasping for air and convulsing. This stunted horror, we will soon learn, is the piece of Voldemort's tattered and torn soul that embedded in Harry's when the Dark Lord's killing curse rebounded back in Godric's Hollow. Years ago, when Harry saw Tom Riddle's name on the diary in Chamber of Secrets, he felt the pull of familiarity, the draw of some unknown twin. Quote, it seemed to mean something to him, Harry thought at the time. Almost as though Riddle was a friend. A good friend. A really good friend. He'd had when he was very small and had half forgotten. Now he feels only fear. Though he feels he ought to comfort the creature, he doesn't want to approach it. The masked part of himself that once pulled him like a magnet now repels him in the light. And then he hears another sound. You cannot help, says the familiar voice of a man who knows a few things about sacrifice. Is that Albus Dumbledore's music? (laughs) It is. And the headmaster strides toward Harry, arms open wide, his once shriveled, blackened hand, healthy and whole. Harry, he says, you wonderful boy, you brave, brave man. Let us walk. Incredible moment. Right away, this appearance, this greeting, these words restore our faith. Dumbledore expected to see Harry here. Our first peek beyond the veil shows not betrayal, but belief rewarded. Dumbledore leads Harry to a pair of benches away from the scarred, mewling form on the ground, and Harry, stunned by the headmaster's arrival, drinks in the sight of his teacher. Albus looks just as Harry remembered, better even, Mm -hmm. refreshed, as if just having woken from a restorative nap. I am not personally familiar with (laughs) what that would feel like. (laughs) Quote, But you're dead, 
said Harry. Oh, yes, said Dumbledore matter-of-factly. Then I'm dead too? Ah, said Dumbledore, still smiling broadly. That is the question, isn't it? On the whole, dear boy, I think not. Let's run through it here, folks. Cryptic answers to existentially urgent queries? Check. Answering a question with a question? (laughs) Check. A playful twinkle in the eye that makes him very difficult to get mad at or stay mad at? And a broad smile that reassures even amid the gloom? Check. Yep. This is our Dumbledore. (laughs) Not, repeated Harry. Not, said Dumbledore. Relief. A rush of restorative relief. And then, of course, naturally, more questions. Harry rubbing his face and realizing that his signature lightning bolt scar is not on his forehead, thinks over his last memories for before Voldemort struck him down. But I should have died, he says. I didn't defend myself. I meant to let him kill me. And that, Dumbledore replies, will, I think, have made all the difference. Dumbledore looks happier than Harry has ever seen him, alight with the knowledge that Harry was as brave and true as he always knew, and that Voldemort was as foolish. Explain, Harry says, and there's something so winning about it. Harry has suffered incomparable loss and made choices that no one should ever have to make. The days of accepting anything short of full candor are over, as they should be, and with that one word, He demands that when he next thinks to himself, finally the truth, he'll actually know that he's heard it. Dumbledore obliges, but in his typical fashion, by letting Harry find his own way to clarity. But you already know, Dumbledore says, reminding Harry that what he's needed has been inside of him all along and also serving the metafunction of allowing readers to interpret what's happening in this sequence and how, as they see fit. Harry says again that he let Voldemort kill him, and Dumbledore urges him on. Harry asks if the piece of the Dark Lord's soul inside of him is gone. Oh, yes, said Dumbledore. Yes, he destroyed it. <laughs> your soul is whole and completely your own, Harry. He's so excited. He, it really is. It's like, he's, it's like watching sports with Stannis at Winterfell. He's so happy about this. <laughs> Harry looks over to the flayed, wailing creature understanding, dawning, and asks what it is. Something that is beyond either of our help, said Dumbledore. And this idea will be key in the next chapter when Harry explains to Voldemort that his only chance is to show some remorse, to attempt to atone, to search for any remaining shred of decency within himself. The sliver of his soul inside of Harry couldn't do that. It was broken, a festering shrivel of disease and rot, flayed not only of skin but of its humanity. Shouts to my bolting heads. (laughs) Harry next wonders how he can still be alive if Voldemort used the killing curse. Now, Harry, of course, has famously survived the curse once before, becoming the only person to do so when Voldemort's green jet of light failed to kill him in Godric's Hollow. Then, Harry lived because his mother, Lily Potter, sacrificed herself for him, shielding him with her body and her pledge and her love, and in so doing, imbuing her son's blood with an ancient and powerful protective magic that Dumbledore sealed by placing Harry at the Dursleys with Petunia, Lily's blood. But no one died for Harry this time. No one shielded him. He walked toward the forest with the intent of shielding others. So then how did he manage to survive this time when, as Voldemort once taunted him, there was no mother to die for him? I think you know, said Dumbledore. Think back. Remember what he did in his ignorance, in his greed, and his cruelty. As we and Dumbledore alike have often observed, Voldemort's great weakness is his tendency to dismiss that which he considers weak, insignificant, or beneath him, like friendship, like love. As Voldemort will soon say, mockingly, when he and Harry meet for the final decisive time. Is it love again? (laughs) 
Dumbledore's favorite solution, love, which he claimed conquered death, though love did not stop him from falling from the tower and breaking like an old waxwork. What's this? My wand's not working! (laughs) (laughs) He never had that problem with Bellatrix. Well, we don't know that. How wrong he will be. <laughs> Felt an obligation to get one sex joke into this episode, <laughs> folks. It is binge mode. It is binge mode. <laughs> the snake <laughs> need not be rigid to expel its milk. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, boy. Harry looks around <laughs> as he considers Dumbledore's prompt. Quote, he took my blood. Ding, 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 ding. Precisely, Dumbledore replies with glee. Recall, when Harry told Dumbledore what had transpired in the graveyard in Goblet of Fire, mm-hmm. how Dumbledore reacted to hearing that Voldemort had used Harry's blood to help regenerate his body anew. Quote, for a fleeting instant, Harry thought he saw a gleam of something like triumph in Dumbledore's eye. This is the explanation that readers have been waiting for since reading that in book four the truth behind the gleam. Dumbledore knew what Voldemort had cost himself in his greed, knew what door the Dark Lord's hubris had opened for Harry to walk through. Quote, your blood in his veins, Harry, Dumbledore says here in King's Cross. Lily's protection inside both of you. He tethered you to life while he lives. Harry's like, "Mm, my guy, I thought it was the other way around. Is is that how it worked? Sybil Trelawney's prophecy, remember, said that neither can live while the other survives. And then what Harry saw in Snape's memories indicated that both had to die, that Harry had to perish in order for Voldemort to be made mortal again. But that which Voldemort sought to achieve through mass murder and a defiling of his own soul, Harry, without seeking it, attained through his mother's sacrifice, through his own selflessness, and through his own foe's crippling myopia. Harry is briefly distracted by the shrieking of Voldemort's stunted soul, and he asks Dumbledore again if there's anything that they can do to help it. And this is another hallmark of Harry's heroism. Even after once again being nearly murdered by Voldemort, after having watched his friends fall amid the onslaught unleashed at Hogwarts, on Voldemort's orders, after years of living under the shadow of the Dark Lord's growing threat, Harry still has empathy, even to an extent for this piece of Voldemort. He cannot abide suffering or abandonment, no matter how deserving of it a person might be. He needs to at least ask, to at least try, to at least maintain some sliver of hope. In the film First Reform, oh! the, out- <laughs> the outstanding movie that Jason and I both recently watched. Yeah, edit. Ooh, carve, it's a doozy. Out, carve out a few hours to sit with that one after you watch it. Believe me, folks. It is about a godly man on the brink of of existential collapse. And in it, Ethan Hawke's Reverend Toller says, quote, wisdom is holding two contradictory truths in our mind simultaneously, hope and despair. A life without despair is a life without hope. Holding these two ideas in our head is life itself. We will refrain from discussing here whether First Reformed is ultimately a hopeful movie. (laughs) But Harry, even in the depths of his despair, finds a way to maintain a glimmer of hope, or at least the desire to find one. That is uncommonly rare. 
Dumbledore tells him not unkindly, but definitively nonetheless, there is no help possible. Because again, there has been no show of remorse. There is no pure hope inside of Voldemort, only envy and greed. Then explain more, Harry says, and Dumbledore beams in him again. <laughs> I love this. You were the seventh Horcrux, Harry, Dumbledore says, the Horcrux he never meant to make. And Albus explains that the heinous evil acts that Voldemort committed to create his Horcruxes so destabilized his soul that, quote, when he committed those acts of unspeakable evil, the murder of your parents, the attempted killing of a child, it shattered without his recognition, unbeknownst to the Dark Lord who had so corrupted his own spirit and soul that he could not feel, could not sense another piece of it leaving him, a shard of it, left his body. When Lily's sacrifice caused his killing curse to rebound and hit him, and that shard embedded itself in the closest life form, Harry, accidentally creating the seventh Horcrux that only Dumbledore ever identified. Worse yet for Voldemort, his own arrogance kept him from ever comprehending the danger that his bias and his rivals posed to him. Quote, that which Voldemort does not value, he takes no trouble to comprehend, Dumbledore says. Of house elves and children's tales of love, loyalty, and innocence, Voldemort knows and understands nothing, nothing. That they all have a power beyond his own, a power beyond the reach of any magic, is a truth he has never grasped. Think of what falls under that quote's reach. Creature in the cave, the tale of the three Uh brothers and the hallows, everything that Harry represents. Uh The Dark Lord has erred many, many times Uh in his years-long struggle with Harry. Many times. (laughs) The scoreboard is a rough look for the Dark Lord. Very tough stuff. Tough. (laughs) For instance, using Harry's blood in the little Hangleton graveyard to rebuild his body was among his most serious missteps. Quote, he took into his body a tiny part of the enchantment your mother laid upon you when she died for you, Dumbledore tells Harry here. From the book, his body keeps her sacrifice alive, and while the enchantment survives, so do you, and so does Voldemort's one last hope for himself. How fitting, how apt, Voldemort believed that taking Harry's blood will allow him to touch him, to possess him, to weaken him, and to prevail. In reality, it allowed Harry to best him yet again at the most crucial moment with the fate of the world on the line and Voldemort still none the wiser about how he's erred. Harry asked Dumbledore if he knew all along. And there's some sadness there for what Dumbledore kept from him. But there is also awe. I guessed, says Dumbledore. But my guesses have usually been good. An iconic flex from Albus Dumbledore. (laughs) Recall what Dumbledore said to Harry back in Sorcerer's Stone. Quote, your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. In some ways then, Dumbledore really did tell Harry way back in the beginning. In some ways, long before the gleam of triumph and the clarity that this revelation unlocked for Dumbledore, years before acquiring Slughorn's memory and learning from it how many other Horcruxes they were seeking, Dumbledore shared with Harry the one key that would trump all. Harry, of course, is not through with the questions. He asks next about the strange interaction that transpired between his former Holly Wand and the wand that Voldemort borrowed from Lucius Malfoy, an outcome that the twin core effect that saved Harry's life in the little Hangleton graveyard at the end of Gobble to Fire cannot explain. Dumbledore says he can't be sure. Quote, have a guess then. (laughs) Harry says, incredible. He's feeling it right now. (laughs) Dumbledore bids Harry to understand that everything that happened between Harry and Voldemort is unprecedented. Not even an expert wand maker like Ollivander, Dumbledore explains here, 
could have predicted the events that transpired in the sky the night of the Seven Potters battle. Dumbledore both explaining the past and also priming us anew for the role that Wanlore will play in the endgame, and the mistakes that Voldemort makes in this arena as well, again lays out the double bond between Harry and Voldemort. The first, forged when the Dark Lord attempted to murder Harry as a child, unwittingly fulfilling the prophecy by marking Harry as his equal. Transferring abilities like Parseltongue to Harry by inadvertently making him a casing for his soul. And the second, birthed when Voldemort used Harry's blood to rebuild his own body. Quote, If he could only have understood the precise and terrible power of that sacrifice, he would not perhaps have dared to touch your blood, Dumbledore says. This line is great. But then, if he had been able to understand, he could not be Lord Voldemort and might never have murdered at all. This is a key line, a key idea, which cuts not only to the core failing of Voldemort's character, but to the diametrically opposed differences between Harry and his foe. Voldemort cast aside his soul for the sake of preserving his body. Harry cast aside his body for the sake of his soul and the souls of those he loves. Harry sacrifices the complete antithesis to Voldemort's actions, which are always focused on tearing down others so that he can rise above them. Recall Dumbledore's words to Harry and Prince, quote, Lord Voldemort has never had a friend, nor do I believe that he has ever wanted one. Voldemort chose Harry, not Neville, upon hearing part of the prophecy because he recognized something of himself in the half-blood boy. Throughout the series, Harry grew unnerved by the similarities between him and his good friend Tom, and the portal, the Horcrux we now know, that connected their minds. But in the ways that matter most, they were never remotely alike. In Prince, Dumbledore said to Harry, quote, Voldemort himself created his worst enemy, just as tyrants everywhere do. In acting on the prophecy, yes, but also in ripping love out of Harry's life and in so doing, reinforcing for Harry that love was always the greatest gift and the greatest weapon of all. And he could never see it, never understand it, just like he could never believe that someone other than him had discovered the room of hidden things. He saw always only his own ambition, never acknowledging love as the power the Dark Lord knows not just as he never acknowledged the power or even the presence of anything that he failed to directly benefit from or value. Dumbledore continues to explain what happened with Harry's wand, noting that these events inextricably bound Harry and the Dark Lord's destinies together, quote, more securely than ever two wizards were joined in history. In this context, Voldemort attacked Harry in the little Hangleton graveyard with a wand crafted using a feather from the same phoenix whose tail feather resides in Harry's wand, Fox's. And we know the result. Harry and Voldemort's wand recognized each other as brothers, twins, and instead of dueling, they spontaneously produced Priory and Cantatum. With their wands linked and the forms of the dead emerging to dance around them, Harry's bravery in the face of seemingly certain death, his desperation to get back to Cedric's body and Hogwarts and his friends— Prove more powerful than Voldemort's evil intentions and utterly craven desire to evade death. From the book, he was more afraid than you were that night, Harry. You had accepted, even embraced the possibility of death, something Lord Voldemort has never been able to do. Your courage won. Your wand overpowered his. Dumbledore's theory is that Harry's wand, quote, imbibed some of the power and qualities of Voldemort's wand that night, which is to say that it contained a little of Voldemort himself, just like Harry. 
When they met again in the sky above Little Whinging during the Battle of the Seven Potters, Harry's wand recognized the wielder, this time Voldemort, as, quote, both kin and mortal enemy, and it reacted by blasting Voldemort with powerful magic, which combined Harry's, quote, enormous courage and of Voldemort's own deadly skill. What chance did that poor stick of Lucius <laughs> Malfoy stand? Man. Savage. Yet another dunk. On Lucius Malfoy. <laughs> Harry asks how Hermione could have broken his wand if it were so powerful, but Dumbledore says that its remarkable power was specific to Voldemort, quote, who had tampered so ill-advisedly with the deepest laws of magic. This is fascinating logic to extend to Harry himself and ask if wizard, like wand, would only be extraordinary against the foe who made him. The answer, of course, is no. For some heroes, maybe, but not for Harry. That's why he's special. The abilities he possessed could courage, choice, daring, tolerance, love, make him a valiant and noble soul in any situation. Harry, now thinking of wands, next says, quote, he killed me with your wand. And Dumbledore notes that actually Voldemort failed to kill Harry with the Elder Wand. Quote, I think we can agree that you are not dead. Though, of course, he added, as if fearing he had been discourteous, I do not minimize your sufferings, which I am sure were severe. <laughs> It's really hard to overstate how good it is to be back with Dumbledore in any form after so long apart. Harry, responding to Dumbledore's suffering line by noting that he feels pretty darn good at the moment, actually, asks Dumbledore where they are exactly. And Dumbledore responds by noting that he was going to ask Harry that question. And Harry hadn't realized it until Dumbledore prompted him. But now he looks around and recognizes where they are. King's Cross Station. But cleaner, you know, aside from the gross, trembling, ghoul-like whimpering nearby, and desolate and so far devoid of trains. Dumbledore expresses delight and surprise at this. And when Harry, slightly on edge, asks, well, where do you think we are? Dumbledore says, quote, my dear boy, I have no idea. <laughs> this is, as they say, your party. Harry finds this answer, quote, infuriating. Even in the limbo between life and death, Dumbledore is Dumbledore. He can't help but speak in vagaries and half-riddles. But for the reader, this answer is exactly right. As we've discussed during our Deathly Hallows run in particular, and really across the whole podcast, J.K. Rowling has spoken openly since the series wrapped about how her own faith influenced this story. Quote, to me, the religious parallels have always been obvious, she said in 2007 after the seventh book's publication. Quote continues, but I never wanted to talk too openly about it because I thought it might show people who just wanted the story where we were going. Though the opening epigraphs in Deathly Hallows and the inscriptions on the Godric's hollow tombstones inserted overt Christian imagery into this book, J.K. remained tight-lipped before that, not wanting comments about her own beliefs to reveal her plan for Harry's sacrifice and resurrection. It is more than fair to interpret the events in King's Cross, just like so much else that transpires across this saga, including every statement about embracing death and what comes after life, rather than seeking to beat death, as Rowling's mission statement on what the hereafter that both faith and magic facilitate is. But that is not forced upon readers. Part of the magic of Harry Potter is that can mean different things to different people and that each of us can relate to it in our own way. If you believe that Harry is the Christ figure and that this is his brief trip into the afterlife, then that's valid. And if you believe that this Dumbledore is a creation of Harry's mind and that Harry is able to glean such insight and truth at last on the strength of all that he's learned to this point and also all that he's sensed, 
that's valid too. Faith is believing in that which you cannot always see. And in a story built on the power of death and friendship, we can't always see what someone else does. But that doesn't mean it isn't there. Harry will ask about that very matter in the closing paragraphs of this chapter. Now he's wondering something else, something pressing he's yet to ask. The Deathly Hallows, he says. For the first time, Dumbledore stops smiling, and Harry thinks that he looks not old and wise, but young and afraid. His reaction from there is shocking. Can you forgive me, he asks. Can you forgive me for not trusting you, for not telling you? Harry, I only feared that you would fail as I had failed. I only dreaded that you would make my mistakes. I crave your partner. I have known for some time now that you are the better man. And Dumbledore's eyes fill with tears as he speaks. From the beginning, something about those twinkling blue eyes and grandfatherly demeanors suggested sadness, grief. Recall the end of Sorcerer's Stone when Harry, then truly just a boy, learned the reason that Quirrell couldn't bear to touch him. Quote, he didn't realize that love, as powerful as your mother's for you, leaves its own mark, not a scar, no visible sign, Dumbledore told Harry. And Harry wept. The presence of strong emotions can often make people uncomfortable, especially those who seem most in control of theirs. Not Dumbledore. Faced with Harry's tears, Albus, quote, became very interested in a bird out on the windowsill. He allowed Harry space to grieve instead of, as some might have done, attempt to awkwardly console him or turn coldly away. That small scene draws the portrait of a man who has walked with grief, who knows its weight and who, recognizing it in others, meets it with kindness, dignity, and understanding. Finally, in this strange but freeing place between life and death with the time for caution and reservation long past, Dumbledore reveals the depths of his sadness and the excruciating toll on his heart and his conscience. Quote, The hallows, the hallows, murmured Dumbledore, a desperate man's dream. Harry initially thinks that Albus is questioning their existence rather than noting the grip they held him in. But they're real, Harry says. Real and dangerous and a lure for fools, Dumbledore replies. And I was such a fool. But you know, don't you? I have no secrets from you anymore. You know. What do I know? Once upon a time, during that same closing conversation in Sorcerer's Stone, Dumbledore, in reference to Nicholas Flamel, told Harry, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. And Dumbledore embraced that idea in time. Harry did too, right here in this stretch. Doing so is what allowed him to get here now. But we're about to see as apologies and rationalizations and fragmented statements come spilling from Dumbledore in shame-filled, anything-but-organized fashion, how long Dumbledore's road to get there really was. Quote, Master of Death, Harry, Master of Death, was I better, ultimately, than Voldemort? And what a shocking thing for Albus Dumbledore to ask. So much of what Harry's learned over the course of this book caused him to sacrifice some of the trust that he'd built up in Dumbledore. But now, faced at last with the truth, the occasionally very ugly truth that he's craved for so long, he finds that his instinct is to forgive, to accept, to defend Dumbledore. He is adamant here. Quote, how can you ask that? Of course Dumbledore was better than Voldemort, he says. And he was in a million different ways. But the unspoken something that we always sensed behind Dumbledore's eyes is revealing itself now in the form of sincere shame and regret. Quote, yet I too sought a way to conquer death, he says. And Harry points out that it's not the same. He wants to reassure Dumbledore to comfort him, even amid the horror of what he's learning. And there's something wonderful about witnessing that instinct. 
Voldemort murdered to create Horcruxes, Harry says, to evade death, which he feared, which he thought weak. Quote, hallows, Harry tells Dumbledore, not Horcruxes. Harry asks if Grindelwald was looking for the hallows, too. Yes, Dumbledore confirms his eyes closed in remembrance, and we now know something more. He says that the quest for these little-known legendary items was the thing that, quote, drew us together. After the seventh book, J.K. revealed that Dumbledore was in love with Grindelwald, and in the second Fantastic Beast movie, we began to see how the remembrance of that love, of that time of acceptance, held sway over him still. Here, Dumbledore confirms that the three brothers in the tale— were indeed the brothers Peveril, and that Ignotus Peveril's grave in the Godric's hollow graveyard is what brought Grindelwald to Harry's hometown. Tough beat here for Batty Bagshot. <laughs> thought it was just a Sorry. nice family visit. here to see me. <laughs> Dumbledore <laughs> thinks the tale of the Hallows being death's own creation is just that, a tale, and that these three were, in actuality, three gifted wizards who managed to create three items of incredible magical power. Quote, the story of them being Death's Own Hallows seems to me the sort of legend that might have sprung up around such creations. Dumbledore also confirms that Harry is the last living descendant of Ignotus Peveril, whose invisibility cloak was passed down through the generations, eventually reaching James Potter and then finally his son. Me, you, Dumbledore says. I love that. The cloak, of course, made one brief but important detour. Yes. Quote, you may have guessed, I know, why the cloak was in my possession on the night your parents died. Dumbledore says. Harry's father had apparently shown the family heirloom to Dumbledore in the days before he and Lily's murder, and Dumbledore, seeing the unequaled nature of the object, immediately suspected that it was the cloak of legend and one of the Deathly Hallows. Quote, I had long since given up my dreams of uniting the Hallows, but I could not resist, he says, beginning a theme of temptation that we'll see throughout his unburdening. He asked James to take the cloak to more closely examine it and confirmed it was unlike anything he had seen. Quote, and then your father died, Dumbledore says bitterly, and I had two hallows at last, all to myself. We're seeing more and more of the guilt that Dumbledore carries, the disgust he shoulders, not only for his foes, but for himself. Harry again attempts to put Albestes, noting that the cloak would not have saved James and Lily against Voldemort's power. But while Dumbledore is grateful, Harry does not yet understand that for Dumbledore, the hallows are and have always been, at every turn, a poison chalice. The quest for them bound him and Grindelwald together and resulted in the death of his sister, Ariana. He became master of the Elder Wand by defeating his former best friend and lover. Decades later, long after he had given up the dream of uniting the Hallows, the invisibility cloak by happenstance found him. And while it was in his care, its owner and his wife were murdered, their son orphaned and marked for a lifelong battle. And Dumbledore discovered the Resurrection Stone as part of Marvolo Gaunt's ring in the course of investigating Voldemort's Horcrux plot only to find his old ambitions and their attendant weaknesses reawakened, leading him in a fit of carelessness to put on the ring, which was, of course, also a Corcrux and thus cursed. The Hallows, as we'll see when Dumbledore lauds Harry's mastery of them, are not inherently evil like Horcruxes are, but they are not for the weak. They were, in a sense, the great folly of Dumbledore's long and eventful life. Woo! With these regrets and more that will soon reveal themselves playing through his mind, Dumbledore says in response to Harry's query about whether he had stopped looking for the Hallows by the time James showed him the cloak, quote, Oh, yes, he says. You know what happened. You know. You cannot despise me more than I despise myself. That's what we say to our producers every time we're late for a recording. <laughs> Harry does not despise Dumbledore, and he says so 
How could he? All he ever wanted was what Dumbledore is giving him here. The truth, trust, love. Quote, then you should, says Dumbledore, still sickened by his own mistakes and their cost. He mentions Ariana's, quote, ill health. After the Muggle Boys attack, never using the word obscurus or obscurial, which does not appear in the original seven books, as we will hear in the Fantastic Beast movies, but still further confirming in hindsight fans' suspicions that this is what Ariana became after her magic turned inward. He mentions his father, imprisoned for trying to avenge his daughter. He mentions his mother, who gave up everything to care for her child. Quote, I resented it, Harry. It is among the most nakedly cold lines from one of the series' most beloved characters. And for that reason, it is a tiny miracle. Dumbledore at last willing to sacrifice what others, including Harry, might think of him in order to lay his soul bare. When Albus's mother died, he viewed the responsibility of caring for his sister as an anchor, a burden. In his callow, youthful selfishness, Albus came to feel that he was sacrificing his ambition, his future, his greatness. Quote, I was gifted. I was brilliant. I wanted to escape. I wanted to shine. I wanted glory. He implores Harry to understand that he loved his family. He did not wish them ill. Quote, but I was selfish, Harry, more selfish than you, who are a remarkably selfless person, could possibly imagine. It is shocking to hear this, but also transformative, illuminating. Dumbledore, who so often seemed like a god, is showing us that he was immortal, flawed, blind, like so many of us so often are, to what matters most. And his ability to transcend those desires to fight for good, both in himself and in the world, is a lesson for everyone, a testament to the power of our choices and our desire to improve. Into the despair of Dumbledore's youth waltzed Grindelwald, talented, exotic, and burning with passion to change the world. You cannot imagine how his ideas caught me, Harry, and flamed me, Dumbledore says. Suffocated by the domesticity of his surroundings and responsibilities, Dumbledore found Grindelwald's zeal so intoxicating that he managed to ignore the appalling details of Gellert's mission. Quote, muggles forced into subservience, we wizards triumphant, Dumbledore says. Albus managed to rationalize the brutality of what they sought. Quote, I assuage my conscience with empty words. It would all be for the greater good, and not just for others, but for himself. Quote, if the plans we were making came to fruition, all my dreams would come true. This line, we can now deduce, is about more than just power. In The Crimes of Grindelwald, the stage direction for the moment when young Dumbledore looks at the picture of him and Grindelwald together as young men reads, quote, These memories are agony. He is full of remorse, but almost worse. Nostalgia for the only time in his life he felt truly understood. Moments before this, he tells the ministry officials that they were, quote, closer than brothers. There's a longing here that goes beyond political or social ambition. It's the desire to be accepted and loved, two things everyone craves. But there was also the Hallows, the key to Grindelwald and Dumbledore's plans, the totems of their power, the revolution. The Elder Wand, the death stick with which they would cut through their foes and carve a path to victory. The Resurrection Stone, which for Grindelwald, quote, meant an army of inferior. Dumbledore's desire for the stone changed over time, as we'll see. But in his youth, he sought to use it to bring back his parents, thus lifting the charge of having to care for Ariana from his shoulders. Quote, in the cloak, somehow we never discussed the cloak much, Harry. What a remarkable juxtaposition of Dumbledore and Grindelwald on one side and Harry and Ignotus on the other, the rightful masters of the cloak. Dumbledore and Grindelwald sought it only to complete the set, to master death, 
They did not value it on its own, not needing it to become invisible and not recognizing its true and very subtle power, Mm -hmm. quote, that it can be used to protect and shield others as well as its owner. Dumbledore admits as a measure of his selfishness at the time that he considered it as a potentially useful means of hiding Ariana from prying eyes. But we can't minimize the significance of the hallow most closely associated with Harry and most closely associated with the one Peveril brother who sought not to cheat death but to welcome it gladly, not carrying value to them, the boys who took the master of death lore to mean they'd become invincible. Quote, Invincible masters of death, Grindelwald and Dumbledore. Two months of insanity, of cruel dreams, and neglect of the only two members of my family left to me. Aberforth, of course, has already told Harry what happened next, and here Albus confirms it. Aberforth, disgusted by his brother's behavior, unloaded on Albus, attempting to drag him back to reality, to sanity, to his family. The brothers and Gellert began a fight that turned into a duel. Quote, Grindelwald lost control. That which I had always sensed in him, though I pretended not to, now sprang into terrible being. And Ariana, after all my mother's care and caution, lay dead upon the floor. Ariana, dead at their feet. This was the price of Dumbledore gaining self-awareness. Ariana's life sacrificed unwillingly at the altar of his youthful hubris. It also, of course, became the seed of his eventual hard-won wisdom a life-saving beacon for so many others. But Dumbledore weeps openly at the memory. Quote, Harry reached out and was glad to find that he could touch him. Dumbledore comforted Harry so many times, and now it's Harry who steadies his mentor and friend, bringing their relationship full circle from the moment in Madame Pomfrey's ward at the end of Sorcerer's Stone. Really, in some ways, from the moment that Dumbledore wrapped Harry tightly in the blanket and sealed the magic of Lily's sacrifice. Grindelwald fled, Dumbledore continues, gone to nurture his vile plans for wizarding supremacy and muggle domination, quote, as anyone but I could have predicted. (sighs) It is amazing after a betrayal and tragedy such as this that Dumbledore was able to ever trust anyone again. But of course, his own need for absolution is what led him to seek to grant that to others, like Snape later in life. Quote, he ran while I was left to bury my sister and learned to live with my guilt and my terrible grief, the price of my shame. There was no burying that grief and shame, not ever. They remained, as we hear him say in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, his constant companion forevermore. Quote, years passed, he continues here. There were rumors about him. They said he had procured a wand of immense power. The Elder Wand, we know. Dumbledore adds that he, meanwhile, was offered the post of Minister of Magic several times. Quote, naturally, I refused. (sighs) Man, I had learned that I was not to be trusted with power. (sighs) He sacrificed the ambition that had led him astray in order to fight for the ambition that ultimately came to define his life, teaching, guiding, helping others. Working not in the tainted way that the slogan implies, but in the truth of the letters themselves, for the greater good. Harry, again trying to lift his friend's spirits, and also still sore at both fudge and scrimgeour-like corn fudge. <laughs> Let's not forget. <laughs> Let's not forget it. 
says that Dumbledore would have used the office much more sagely and beneficially than either of them managed to do. That he would have been, simply, better than them. Would I? asked Dumbledore heavily. I am not so sure. I had proven as a very young man that power was my weakness and my temptation. This next line is an all-timer. It is a curious thing, Harry. But perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. It's incredible. Those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. Man, it's incredible. Dumbledore has given Harry and us so many kernels of wisdom over the years, but none perhaps are so eternal or, for Dumbledore, more painfully earned than this one. This is the product of his pain and his introspection and also the ultimate sanctioning of Harry as a worthy hero, a good and just leader. It is also a quintessential fantasy idea. It unites, for one, Harry and Newt, to whom Dumbledore says in Beast 2, Do you know why I admire you, Newt? More perhaps than any man I know. You do not seek power or popularity. You simply ask, is the thing itself right? And it unites Harry and our beloved heroes from Game of Thrones. The cripples, bastards, and broken things who rise up to rule reluctantly. But, as Dumbledore says here, find the power when handed down to them suits them. As Varys says, and as the best fantasy stories remind us, a very small man can cast a very large shadow. But Dumbledore grew to know himself. Hogwarts then was the, quote, safer option. For Dumbledore and, in his mind, the world. I think I was a good teacher, he says. You were the best, Harry replies. Oh, God, I love Which that. Is beautiful. Dumbledore continues the tale. Hogwarts kept Dumbledore at a distance from the levers of power, and there he shaped the future of the wizarding world while Grindelwald assembled the army which threatened it and everything else. Oh, man. They say he feared me, and perhaps he did, but less, I think, than I feared him, Dumbledore says. Incredible. In Crimes, we'll see Grindelwald's unmatched world-traversing efforts to find a weapon, Obscurus, that he can wield against Dumbledore, unable, as we learn in the film, to move against the man with whom he once made a blood pact. Dumbledore does not share that here, and will presumably need to wait three films to see how these friends turned foes move from not being able to move against each other to engaging in the duel of legend in which possession of the Elder One passed to Dumbledore. Rita Skeeter voice, or did it? <laughs> She's been right before, folks! <laughs> Just need to point that out. Here Harry is perplexed by Dumbledore's portrait of fear. Dumbledore assures Harry that it was not the battle he feared, not death, for he considered them more or less equals and thought, quote, I was a shade more skillful. I love he just pausing got all, to flex in the middle in of your confession. Gotta throw that in there. <laughs> his personal experiences with death had, by that point, also drastically altered his view on death and what the point of living really was. No, what Dumbledore feared, what gnawed at his soul, was the possibility that his curse— might have been the one that struck down Ariana. Quote, Harry, I dreaded beyond all things the knowledge that it had been I who brought about her death, not merely through my arrogance and stupidity, but that I actually struck the blow that snuffed out her life. Grindelwald, Dumbledore thought, knew that and would not have hesitated to weaponize that fear. Based on what we've seen in the Beast films, we can see that this is true, that Grindelwald sought not only a way to beat Dumbledore magically, but a way to wound him emotionally, spiritually, existentially, to prey upon his weakness and his shame. And so Dumbledore delayed as long as he could. 
until he says it would have been inexcusable to do so any longer. Quote, people were dying and he seemed unstoppable and I had to do what I could. Note the word choice there, had to. Pretty similar to the got to language that Dumbledore tried so hard to get Harry to shake. So much of what he passed down to Harry, or seeing here, was informed by his own experience. Quote, well, you know what happened next. I won the duel. I won the wand. And at that, Dumbledore falls silent. Harry does not ask him if he ever learned the truth that he so feared discovering. He doesn't want to know, and he doesn't want to make Dumbledore say it. He begins instead to think of his experience with the Mirror of Erised back in his first year at Hogwarts. Harry was mesmerized by the mirror, by its ability to dredge up the contents of his heart, his parents, his family, his roots, all the things that Voldemort stole from him. Dumbledore gently, with kindness and empathy, told Harry how the mirror worked and warned him against falling prey to its power, falling under its spell. When Harry, not initially grasping the intimacy of the question, asked Dumbledore what it was that he saw in the mirror, Albus said, quote, I see myself holding a pair of thick woolen socks. Now, though, Harry, quote, knew what Dumbledore would have seen when he looked in the mirror of Erised and why Dumbledore had been so understanding of the fascination it had exercised over Harry. In 2007, J.K. Rowling told Time magazine what readers like Harry surely sensed here that Dumbledore had seen, quote, his family, alive and whole and reconciled. The two men sit in silence, Harry no longer disturbed by the baby's shrieks of misery. Dumbledore has his full attention. And people learn about each other through their words, through the flow of conversation. But true closeness, real, soul-deep friendship, is measured by how comfortable you are being silent with another person. Finally, Harry tells Dumbledore about Grindelwald's final gesture. With Voldemort standing over him, demanding to know the whereabouts of the Elder Wand and threatening Grindelwald's life if the old wizard would not give it up, quote, he lied, you know, pretended he never had it, Harry says. The tears pour down Dumbledore's face. And we know that they're for so much more than this one thing. Maybe they're for the possibility that the love he felt lingered for Grindelwald as well. Certainly, therefore, this reinforcement that even the most hopelessly lost can repent if they want to. They say he showed remorse in later years alone in his cell at Nurmengard. I hope that's true, Dumbledore says. If it is true, in this, Grindelwald showed himself at least to be marginally better than Voldemort, who in the next chapter will scoff when Harry asks him to, quote, try for some remorse. From the book, perhaps that lie to Voldemort was his attempt to make amends, to prevent Voldemort from taking the hallow. Or maybe from breaking into your tomb, suggested Harry, and Dumbledore dabbed his eyes. There's another briefer silence, though, as Harry has observed. Who knows what time means in this place? Then Harry says, quote, you tried to use the resurrection stone. It's not a question. As Dumbledore said, there are no secrets now, and they see each other clearly, fully. Dumbledore has just explained how in his youth, during his dalliance with Grindelwald and wizarding fascism, he sought the stone in order to bring back his parents so they could care for Ariana, allowing Albus to freely pursue his ambitions. Finally finding it, lifetimes later, under the floorboards of the gaunt shack, Dumbledore coveted it as fiercely as ever, but for very different reasons, devastating reasons. He sought this time that universal human desire for forgiveness, for absolution, and an existential do-over. Quote, I lost my head, Harry, 
I quite forgot that it was now a horcrux, that the ring was sure to carry a curse. I picked it up and I put it on. And for a second, I imagined that I was about to see Ariana and my mother and my father and to tell them how very, very sorry I was. I was such a fool, Harry. After all those years, I had learned nothing. I was unworthy to unite the Deathly Hallows. I had proved it time and again, and here was my final proof. Ooh. Of course, Harry knows all too well how the desire to be reunited with lost loved ones can eat away at you until there's nothing left but the recklessness that drives you to try. In some ways, that longing is Harry's oldest companion. To Harry, the hunger that drove Dumbledore to put on the ring is not foolish. It is completely understandable, completely human. Quote, you wanted to see them again, he says. What's wrong with that? Fallibility is natural. Longing is human. Dumbledore says, quote, maybe a man in a million could unite the Hallows, Harry. I was fit only to possess the meanest of them, the least extraordinary. He was worthy of the Elder Wand, he tells Harry, because he didn't want to use it to kill and rule, but to save others from its deadly power. The other two Hallows are quite a different story. The cloak, Dumbledore tells Harry, he borrowed from James out of, quote, vain curiosity, and therefore it would never have worked properly for him, not the way it does for Harry, quote, its true owner. This, like so much else in the series, is magic boiled down to its essence, the power of love and allegiance and strength and debt that flows through it all. And the stone? Even in his different phases of relation to it and longing for it, he still always desired in order to, quote, attempt to drag back those who are at peace. Rather than to enable my sacrifices, you did. You are the worthy possessor of the Hallows. The irony of this is also the power of it. Harry did not choose the Hallows, did not seek their power, did not, despite his temptation for them, give in to their pull. He picked hunting horcruxes. And in that restraint and sense of self, in his determination to pursue the destruction of the Horcruxes, tethering Voldemort to life instead, and protect the others in his life from the hell and havoc all around them, he became the master of the Hallows even still. This is the same lesson that's at the heart of Dumbledore's earlier statement about power. The worthy are often such because they never aim to be. Mm -hmm. Dumbledore pats Harry's hand and Harry looks at him and smiles. Quote, he could not help himself. How could he remain angry with Dumbledore now? And here it is again, always, that effortless charm, the twinkling eyes, the knowing smirk that always seems to diffuse Harry's anger. It's a touch exasperating, but yeah. mostly consoling. This little magic trick that Albus retains, even in death, heartwarming and disarming in its power. Quote, why did you have to make it so difficult? Harry asks. It is, in a sense, a kind of surrender, a recognition that the anger which Harry had been carrying is now empty baggage, meaningless amid all that they've achieved and shared together. Part of their story, yes, but something they can choose to move beyond. As resentful as Harry had been of Dumbledore, it's nothing compared to the hatred with which Dumbledore has regarded himself. When Harry and Ron fought, remember, Harry felt that, quote, something had broken between them, but they stitched it back together. That's what friendship is. Trust can crack like the ice on the lake, but if we're lucky, someone's standing there to pull us back out. 
With this understanding, this acknowledgement neatly encapsulated in this one delightful, perfect line of dialogue, Dumbledore can now lay out in detail the parts of his plan, which, by necessity but also with regret, he hid from Harry for so long. I'm afraid I counted on Miss Granger to slow you up, Harry, Dumbledore says, explaining his fear that Harry, in his excitement and haste, might acquire the Hallows at a time when his desire to prevail over Voldemort might have overwhelmed his innate selflessness and wisdom. If you laid hands on them, I wanted you to possess them safely, he continues. But Harry did not succumb. You are the true master of death because the true master does not seek to run away from death. He accepts that he must die and understands that there are far, far worse things in the living world than dying, Dumbledore says. Voldemort, of course, never knew that. There is nothing worse than death, Voldemort shouted at Dumbledore in the ministry atrium as they dueled in order. Dumbledore is sure that in typical Tom Riddle fashion, the Dark Lord was unaware of the Hallows. He turned the resurrection stone into a horcrux, never recognizing its power. He never sought the cloak. His desire for the Elder One blinded him, but he pursued it, seemingly ignorant, as Harry had come to suspect across the course of this year of its standing as one of three. Harry had deduced that Voldemort's lack of awareness stemmed from his ignorance. His upbringing at a Muggle orphanage meant he, like Harry and Hermione, wouldn't have heard Beetle's tales. And if he had, Harry assured, as Dumbledore said earlier in this stretch, that Voldemort would have dismissed it as a child story, unworthy of his attention. Dumbledore is even harsher, believing that even if he knew the legend of the Hallows, the Dark Lord would only have been interested in the unbeatable wand to solve his reoccurring wand problem, which, again, a lot of guys have this issue, Tom, which threatened his power and legitimacy. Quote, he would not think he needed the cloak. And as for the stone, whom would he want to bring back from the dead? He fears the dead. He does not love. What a stark, clarifying contrast. And yet another reminder that even in Dumbledore's temptation weakness, he was drawn toward the hallow that meant a return of loved ones, of family. He remained still on the same side as Harry, staring across at Voldemort from across a great divide. Harry asks if Dumbledore expected Voldemort to seek the Elder Wand. I have been sure that he would try ever since your wand beat Voldemort's in the graveyard of Little Hangleton. Remember Zeno loves words. Quote, the bloody trail of the Elder Wand is splattered across the pages of wizarding history. Harry's conversation with Ollivander confirmed this. Voldemort, like many wizards before him who sought the Wand of Destiny, would not have needed to know the Hallow's Lord to covet the death stick. The incident in the graveyard, which took place in full view of his hand-picked supporters, shook the Dark Lord to his core. The issue became even more dire when the Wand Voldemort borrowed from Lucius Malfoy, which theoretically should have solved the twin core issue, failed as well. Quote, so Voldemort, instead of asking himself what quality it was in you that had made your wand so strong, that what gift you possessed that he did not, naturally set out to find the wand that, they said, would beat any other. With the wand now in his possession, though not, as we shall learn in the next chapter, under his control, Voldemort foolishly believes himself invincible. Poor Severus, Dumbledore says, and we can feel his real affection here for the man whom, in order to ensure that Harry reached this place, this moment, Dumbledore had to show his very worst self. If you planned your death with Snape, Harry asks, you meant him to end up with the Elder One, didn't you? I admit that was my intention, but it didn't work out as I intended, did it? No, said Harry. That bit didn't work. One of the few pieces that Dumbledore failed to properly move across the chessboard will wind up helping Harry win the war. Yet one more reminder of the impact of our choices on our own fates. No puppet master decides. We set our own course, even if it takes us a little time to see how. Harry and Dumbledore sit for the longest silence yet. 
the sliver of Voldemort's soul moaning in the distance. Quote, the realization of what would happen next settled gradually over Harry in the long minutes, like softly falling snow. I've got to go back, haven't I? That is up to you. I've got a choice. Oh, yes. (laughs) He always does. That is, in many respects, this story's central message. Dumbledore points out that Harry has placed them here in King's Cross, and now the symbolism of the setting comes fully to the fore. This is the place that really set Harry on his wizarding journey. This is where he boarded the train and met his best friends and headed to the only place that had ever felt like home. From here, he can choose to return and finish that journey, or to travel on to the next great adventure, to places undiscovered and unknown. Like the fantasy stories that we open and lose ourselves so fully in, the train took Harry into another world, his world, the world where he realized he belonged. And it can again. Quote, I think that if you decided not to go back, you would be able to, let's say, board a train? And where would it take me? On. On. Like Nick said of Sirius. On. Like those who have embraced death. Harry has embraced death, clearly. But he's also not finished living. He notes that Voldemort has the Elder Wand and asks if Dumbledore wants him to return. I think, said Dumbledore, that if you choose to return, there's a chance that he may be finished for good. I cannot promise it, but I know this, Harry. You have less to fear from returning here than he does. And Harry here spares one last look at the hard and shuddering shard of Voldemort's soul forever beyond help, hope, or repair. That is what awaits the rest of him, should Voldemort reach this place. Quote, Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living, and above all, those who live without love. This is one of the series' most iconic lines, a cementing of the message that death is not the end. It is, as William Penn's epigraph in Deathly Hallows says, quote, but crossing the world, as friends do the seas, they live in one another still. Harry considers Dumbledore's words about the prospect of ending Voldemort's war and the suffering of so many. And he considers his surroundings, too. It's warm here. And accepting the vile squirmings of Voldemort's sliver of broken soul, it's peaceful. A return to life would necessarily mean a return to loss and pain, but also to his friends, to his family, to the love that drives him. Harry stands making his decision, and he and Dumbledore look into each other's faces, not knowing when they'll see each other again. Quote, tell me one last thing, said Harry. Is this real? Or has this been happening inside my head? Dumbledore beamed at him, and his voice sounded loud and strong in Harry's ears, even though the bright mist was descending again, obscuring his figure. And then... Dumbledore delivers one of the defining lines in this series and literature in our lives. The line that speaks not only to the power of choice and love and perception and belief, but to the power of the stories that we cherish. The stories that we tell ourselves and each other that take root in our hearts, that help us, as Penn said, live in one another still, live in our minds, in our imaginations. Never any the less magical for it. Quote, Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it is not real? 
so good. Oh my god, it's incredible. <sighs> Mal, I think that if you decided not to go back, you'd be able to, let's say, board a train. And where would it take me? Back to the studio for today's restricted section. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about King's Cross Station. King's Cross Station is not an invention of the Potter series, but rather a real train terminal in central London that services tens of millions of passengers each year. So why did J.K. Rowling decide to place her passageway to Hogwarts and eventually the setting for Harry's limbo in this section of Hallows inside this bustling hub of muggle life? Simple. As she writes on Pottermore, quote, My parents met on a train to Scotland which departed from King's Cross Station. She adds, quote, I never knew the slightest indecision about the location of the portal that would take Harry to Hogwarts or the means of transport that would take him there. So cool. Within the fictional world, King's Cross becomes a nexus of wizard transport as well for a similarly simple reason. On our second Prince episode, we talked about the introduction of the Hogwarts Express, which wizards stole from muggles to secure safe passage of students to Hogwarts. A cruel but ingenious solution to keep students from breaking the statute of secrecy as they travel to school. But after the ministry arranged for the construction of a train terminal in Hogsmeade, a new problem arose— where to put the adjoining platform where students could start their journey. As Rowling writes on Pottermore, quote, the Ministry of Magic felt strongly <laughs> that to construct an additional <laughs> wizarding station in the middle of London <laughs> would stretch even the muggles' notorious determination not to notice magic when it was exploding in front of their faces. Imagine Vernon Dursley showing up here by mistake. <laughs> wizarding governance is continues to be incredible. <laughs> Enter King's Cross Station, which rose in the early 1850s as a hub for the Great Northern Railway. The Minister for Magic at the time was a witch named Evangeline Orpington, an iconic name, who decided to build within the new station a concealed platform that was accessible only to magical folk. Because construction was already happening in the area, this was an elegant solution, and it's lasted to the present day without any interruption. For extra caution, Rowling adds, the ministry strategically places employees near platform nine and three quarters at the start and end of each Hogwarts term, just hmm. in case any nearby muggles happen to require <laughs> memory alteration. Interestingly, real world legend has it that King's Cross was built on top of the tomb of Boudicca. Boudicca's very dope. <laughs> <laughs> she was real, she really dope. Stay tuned for binge mode, Boudicca. Yeah. The ancient queen who battled the Romans. And further legend says that she's buried somewhere beneath platform 9 or 10. Pretty cool. However, Rowling says she didn't know this rumor when she decided on the wizard's platform. She was just looking for a creative name and location and decided early on she would choose a fractional platform that would nestle between two muggle ones. She further explains on Pottermore, quote, This raised the interesting question of how many other fractional platforms lay between the whole-numbered platforms at King's Cross. And I concluded that there were probably quite a few. Although these are never mentioned in the book, I like to think that it is possible to take a version of the Orient Express off to wizard-only villages in continental Europe, try platform seven and a half, and that other platforms may be opened on an as-required basis, for instance, for large one-off events hey. such as Celestina Warbeck concerts. Love her. Don't tell Flor Delacour. 
<laughs> that possibility of other platforms is a fascinating wrinkle to consider, and we hope to one day learn more about the enchantments hidden throughout the station. For now, we are, of course, content to have gained entry to platform nine and three quarters, which in London, real muggle London, now features an actual trolley stuck halfway out of the wall. Rolling writes, quote, it makes me beam proudly every time I pass. Jason, you knew this? You knew all along? I guessed. But my guesses have usually been good. Well, I hope your nuggets are good, too. No, they are. <laughs> because it's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, Ouch. by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows, chapters 34 through 35. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one. In a 2008 interview with the Spanish-language newspaper El País... Rowling said of the forest again, as translated on the Leaky Cauldron. Shouts to the Leaky Cauldron. The best. That chapter is the key of all the books. Everything, everything I have written was thought of for that precise moment when Harry goes into the forest. That is the chapter that I had planned for 17 years. That moment is the heart of all the books. Man, that is just incredible. And you can certainly tell. Number two. In a Today Show interview, Rowling said, quote, the passage that I found hardest to write of all of them in all seven books, and the one that made me cry the most, is chapter 34 in this one. That was partly because of the content and partly because it had been planned for so long and been roughed out for so long. And to write the definitive version felt like a huge climax. She continued, quote, when I finished writing, I had an enormous explosion of emotion, and I cried and cried and cried. Number three. Again in 2007, big year, folks. Yes. Rowling was one of the runner-ups for Time Magazine's Person of the Year honor. For that issue of the magazine, she was asked 10 questions about the series, one of which was, quote, why doesn't Fred appear in the woods at the end as well? Her answer, I never even thought of Fred coming back. That's how I always planned it, from when the first book was finished, that the three marauders and his mother would come back. It was all the previous generation, and they were all strongly parental figures for Harry. Great answer. It's just fabulous to see how much thought and care she put into it. I mean, we talk about it all the time. It's been one of the through lines of the pod, but you feel it so much in that chapter. Number four. In 2015, J.K.R. received a tweet, which is very active on Twitter, asking her about her favorite fan theory. And she replied, quote, Dumbledore as death. It's a beautiful theory, and it fits. Okay, let us explain, because this is a cool one. Mm -hmm. This theory holds that Three main characters in the Harry Potter story, Voldemort, Snape, and Harry, act as allegorical stand-ins for the three Peveril brothers, and the Dumbledore acts as a stand-in for death. Voldemort represents Antioch, the brother who acquired the Elder Wand because he died in search of power. Snape represents Cadmus, the brother who acquired the Resurrection Stone because he remade his life after losing someone he loved. And as Cadmus died, he attempted to join her in the afterlife just as Snape died while looking into the green eyes one final time. Harry represents Ignotus, his actual ancestor and the brother who acquired the Cloak of Invisibility that Harry would eventually inherit because he knows not to fear death and goes willingly to, at least Harry thinks, the great beyond. 
And Dumbledore represents death, as both the wizard Dumbledore and the idea of death itself were the only things that Voldemort ever feared. And because just as death met Ignotus as an old friend at the end of the tale of the three brothers, so too does Dumbledore greet Harry as an old friend here in King's Cross. It might not be what Rowling intended when she wrote the story, but it is a brilliant interpretation in retrospect. And... JKR approved. Pretty cool. Number five, Dumbledore says here that when Voldemort's killing curse backfired inside Godric's Hollow on that fateful night 16 years prior, quote, he left more than his body behind. But what happened to his body? Did it disappear in the explosion that tore apart the house? Did the ministry recover it? Did it turn into confetti and fall from the sky? That last one's a movie <laughs> joke, people. The answer is we don't know. And Rowling has never explained exactly what ensued. Interesting. Number six. A few notes on Horcrux minutia and how exactly one is destroyed. In 2015, Rowling answered a fan question on Twitter about why the part of Voldemort's soul inside of Harry hadn't been destroyed all the way back in Chamber of Secrets when the basilisk pierced him, since we know that basilisk venom kills Horcruxes. Good question, right? She clarified, quote, The Horcrux receptacle has to be destroyed, all caps here, beyond repair. So Harry would need to have died. Hashtag. <laughs> Please never ask me that one again. <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> oh, God. And when someone followed up asking how the resurrection stone could still work then as a hallow, given the condition of destroying the receptacle must have been met for Dumbledore to destroy the Horcrux in the ring, Rowling explained, quote, the crack in the stone was Irreparable. Only Dumbledore could have, could have extracted the soul fragment, but left the original charm intact. Number seven. Friends, we're holding out hope that what occurred at the end of Fantastic <laughs> Beasts across the Grindelwald will not retroactively diminish the unparalleled majesty of King's Cross. Please. But we would be remiss not to at least note that Dumbledore's I have no secrets from you anymore goes down a little less smoothly. After the Aurelius Dumbledore reveal at the end of the second Beast film, say it with us. Protect, Protect Kevin! <laughs> Mal, you wonderful co-host, you brave, brave podcaster, let us walk. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most, and today we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to who else? Who Come could on. it be? Come on! Could only be. Of course. Harry Potter. The forest again in King's Cross are, simply put, the defining moments for Harry as a hero, and for Harry as a friend, and for Harry as a human being. He displays unrivaled courage and determination, his sacrifice a timeless testament to the power of love. Harry couldn't know that at this very moment, people meeting in secret all over this podcast studio were holding up their glasses and saying in hushed voices, to Harry, Harry Potter, Potter, the boy, boy who lived. All right, friends, we're nearly there. Very close. We are so proud of you. And of Isaac Lee and Zach Graham, our indispensable producer and researcher, and Kaya McMullen. Hey! Shouts to Kaya, who helped produce today's episode. We hope that you enjoyed today's discussion as much as we did, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time when we will be discussing Chapter 36 and the Deathly Hallows epilogue, the final book pod of our binge mode run. There will be a few more episodes to come after that, though, so stay tuned. Until next time, remember, we'll stay with you until the very end. 
I was safer at Hogwarts. I think I was a good teacher. You were the best. You're very kind, Harry, but while I busy myself... Hold on, dumb. Can we not move farther away from this thing? No, it's... it's, it's don't just ignore it. Ignore it. It's hot, really... Okay. Oh, not death. Not what... It, I have to stop you. I can't even concentrate on what you're saying. With that sound. 